Good morning. Everybody here okay? I'm, I am not a technology guy. You know, I'd rather just speak without this, but uh, these things hanging around and this and that, I'm not used to it. So I want to make sure I turned it on. Uh, let's pray before we start. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us, which is new every day and every moment in our lives. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your spirit. We pray that you would come now, and Lord, may you speak through your word, and may you speak to our hearts, and may you change them, Lord. May we leave here today knowing that we have met with God. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want to mention is that your bulletin says Psalm 117. Well, I'd like to say, you know, those ladies in the office, they got it wrong. But (laughs) I'd love to say that, actually, but I can't. I... uh, about 4 o'clock this morning, I woke up, and uh, I changed the message. So <laughs> I, I hope it was the Lord compelling me and not, uh, you know, something that was undigested from the night before affecting me here. So anyway, and the reason I'm on the floor is uh, I'd like to say that I, uh, I like to be close to the people when I talk. But actually, it's back of my mind, I have just in case halfway through, you guys turn on me. I have a straight getaway for that door. I already had Carol keep my car running out there, you know, just in case, you know. And it's hard to get down there at my age without slipping down the steps and falling, and then I'm, you know, vulnerable. So I figured I would uh, I'd do the safe thing and stay down here with you. Uh, A.W. Toza, great pastor and theologian and writer, referred to God as the great unseen reality. I love that definition, the great unseen reality. And uh, I really don't have a, a, a title for the message, but if I want to say I think I have a title for it, it would probably be uh, fixing our eyes on the great unseen reality. Because God is the greatest of reality. He's ultimate reality. And yet living in a physical world, we struggle with that. I'm already losing this thing. This is going to be a problem, I'm telling you. Okay. We struggle with that. We are physical beings, emotional beings, spiritual beings, but the physical has such a hold on us. And... You know, we, we just, we have all these senses, we smell, we touch, we, we hear, we see, and everything, and we have these inner desires, and we're in this body, and it's constantly pulling at us. And it's, when it does, it, it pulls us away from the great reality, that unseen reality of God. And even some of the most spiritual holiest people in the Bible 
struggled at times with seeing the unseen reality of God. That we get so caught up with the horizontal that we forget there's a vertical. And we struggle with that sometimes. And I think all of you would say that, especially, you know, when we notice that, when things are getting tough. You know, sometimes we can feel very spiritual and very close to God, but then when our world starts to fall apart, you know, when we have the sudden, lo the sudden loss of a loved one, somebody just, and it doesn't have to be sudden, it could also be even at times, over a period of time, and we think we're prepared for them to die. Even after six months of watching them, and almost we have that guilty feeling at times, that thought that I almost wish the Lord would take them now to stop that suffering. And yet when they pass away from this life, we're still impacted by it, and we still grieve, and we're still shocked because we're in this world and these types of things affect us deeply. And we can so quickly shift away from God and just get caught up in the circumstances. And what I want to do today is spend a little time. I originally was going to start with Psalm 117 and then kind of move from there. I just want to stay in the book of Lamentations. If you would go to Lamentations, and we're only going to look at one chapter in fact, we're only going to look at a partial chapter of Lamentations because we could park in this book <laughs> for months. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I wish it was required of every Christian once a year to read the book of Lamentations because Lamentations is a book that deals with the consequences of unrepentant sin. The book itself is the prophet Jeremiah writing after the destruction of Jerusalem when God came and visited Jerusalem with his just wrath for years and decades of unrepentant sin and years and years of warning. Jeremiah preached for 40 years to the people of Jerusalem and his message was, reform your ways and actions because the Lord is going to come with severe judgment upon you. And the people mocked Jeremiah, the false prophets. And there were, when there was the time of the prophets, there were many false prophets. It's always that way. There's always counterfeits. There's always people who claim to be God's speaker, God's man, God's prophet. Well, in that time, there were many, and they were mocking Jeremiah. They were telling the people, Jeremiah was saying, repent, go back to the Lord. Your sin is about to, to fate. Your, your sin is going to bring consequences of utter destruction upon you. He even called out the nation of Babylon that they would be under the destruction of, from the consequences of their sin. And the false prophets would say, don't listen to Jeremiah. Peace. Peace, they were saying. And Jeremiah was saying no, and they were saying peace. The rulers, Jeremiah was, was during his uh, years of, of prophecy, 
his prophetic uh, ministry. They, they couldn't stand Jeremiah, except for one Josiah. When he first started, he was a good king, but he died in 609, and then a reign of kings started that just, they detested Jeremiah. King Jehoiakim, one of the kings of Jerusalem there, of Judah actually, he found Jeremiah's scrolls one day. He, had, he grabbed a hold of Jeremiah's scrolls. He took a knife and he sliced them up and threw them in the fire. You know, this is, this is the uh, attitude that was toward this prophet of God. People didn't want to hear that. And you know what? I'm going I'm to go for a second, go and just say, it's not much different in America today because people love to hear peace, peace, just like that time, rather than to hear repentance, come back to the Lord. And I think of, I think of someone, Joel Osteen, and I know he's popular in some Christian circles. Some people, you know, he's, he seems popular. But he's not a good guy. I'm telling you, as far as when it comes to his theology and what he's leading the people into. He was coming to, he was coming to Long Island, I remember it was about eight or ten years ago in Newsday. And the, the reporter was interviewing so-called Christians and Christian leaders. And I remember one in particular person, and I won't say who it was, it's somebody who has a Christian ministry. And she said, she said, I really like listening to Joel Olstein because he makes me feel good. He never talks about like repentance and sin, which gets me all depressed. But he talks about positive things and succeeding, and he makes me feel happy. And isn't that what Jesus came for? To make me feel good? That's absurd. God doesn't want us to be happy. He wants us to be holy. Yes, he wants us to be filled with his joy, and that brings a happiness, but happiness is temporary. You know? And just think of the title of a book, Your Best Life Now. I mean, what kind of title is that? The Christian walk is the future that we're just passing through. Someone once said that the world is a bridge, and the wise man crosses over it, but the fool tries to build his house upon it. And this is what we're doing in this, this secular society, this, this society that's all about the hick et nunc, the, the here and the now. That's not what the Christian life is about. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And Luke says, take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, where are we going to follow Christ? To the cross? To literally dying, taking up our cross? It's, it's not, we're not following Christ to, to live it up now. It's for the future. It's always, the Christian's hope is always, you know, in the future. The next life, ultimate reality, not this temporary life here. Anyway, before I go too far off my message here on that, let's get back to Lamentations and Jeremiah. Jeremiah was facing that type of thing. In fact, the best way I think I can describe it 
in one short verse instead of me going on too long here to give you a feel for what was happening in Jerusalem. In chapter 5 of Jeremiah, because Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, in chapter 5, Jer the Lord himself actually says this. He's not even speaking through Jeremiah. He is in a sense because Jeremiah writes it down. But the Lord says, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. He says, the prophets prophesy lies. The priests ruled by their own authority. And then he says, and my people love it this way. Going back to hearing the, the good message. You know, not that uncomfortable type of mess. The priests, he says, are ruling by their own authority. Well, think about what's happening in mainline traditions today. Same-sex marriage is, is being, you know, the churches are marrying people, same-sex. That's against what God says. And it's not a homophobic thing. I, I hate when people say that. Because people, they're under the, the, the whole umbrella of sexual sin think about it God says adultery he says fornication which is sex outside of marriage adultery and these these types of sins and homosexuality is one of them how come people most people at least would say adultery is a terrible thing but for some reason we say no homosexuality that's just diversity it's we're we're an accepting we're an accepting society now. But we're, we're getting there, and the, uh, to me, the priests are ruling by their own authority. The, the churches and the mainline denominations are, getting, are ruling by their own authority. They're saying, well, we're, we're going to have to you know, take, that was written a long time ago, and things are different. You know? And they hear what they want to hear. And God says in Jeremiah, and my people love it this way. But then he asked the big question. But what will you do in the end when, this, when the consequences of sin come about? What are you going to do, Jeremiah said. The, the Lord says to Jeremiah, what are they going to do when they have to pay the price? You know, we love to take a credit card and you can charge like crazy all month. And it feels so wonderful and good. We have all this freedom to get whatever we want. But then you know what happens in 30 days. The bill comes, and they expect payment. In fact, they not only expect payment, if you don't pay on time, you pay interest. You know? Well, Jerusalem, in Lamentations, the bill had come finally. God gave them room and room for 40 years. Like I say, Jeremiah preached. But there were also other prophets. Prophet Isaiah, way back in 740, when he started prophesying, was already warning the people in that area. Tell them, telling them that, you know, these, these empires like Assyria were going to take out the northern kingdom and Babylon was going to take out the southern kingdom. He, he was already warning them 120 years before Jeremiah. People didn't want to listen. They wanted to just keep their focus on right now and not what's happening down the road, not what is ultimately an ultimate reality of what takes place. So anyway, if you want to turn to Lamentations, 
book is right after the prophet Jeremiah to chapter 3 I want to go to. And to just fill you in on, let me give you context for this area here when we start the book. What's happening is the consequences finally came. The Babylonian kingdom came. And you know what? They came in, in, in segments. They first came to Jerusalem because Jeremiah started prophesying in 626 B.C. 20 years later, 21 years later, in 605, the Babylonian kingdom comes. And they say they visited Jerusalem. And they basically threw out the king, put in someone else. It was Jehoiakim at the time they put in. And they also said, you're going to pay us tribute. It was kind of, they were strong on them. You know how the mafia goes around and goes to stores and says, hey, you know, your business doing good. You don't want anything to happen to the store, do you? Well, basically, Babylon was saying, you don't want anything to happen to your city, do you hear? Well, we'll watch over it. Just, just make sure you pay us. Well, that was great for about three or four years until Jehoiakim said, the king, he's going, we paying those guys for they're way over on the other side of the world in Babylon we're not paying them well and things worked slower then you know communication everything was slower that was in 605 well in 597 BC they visit again only this time when they come they pull the king out again and they end up putting in uh, ultimately Zedekiah and what they do is they demand tribute again. You've got to come up with money for us and pay us. But they also take 10,000 people from the city and bring them back to, to uh, Babylon as uh, exiles. Now they're getting things. To, I mean, they should have. If, if the first visit didn't bother them, by now this visit should have really said, hey, something's up here. We better watch out. You know, Jeremiah, the God's prophet's been talking about this. Nope. They're not changing. They're not going to do anything. So what happens? Zedekiah, after paying a couple of years, says, I'm not going to pay these guys. They're over in Babylon. We're in Jerusalem here. We don't pay anybody. Well, 586. Actually, 588 it starts. They come in 588. Nebuchadnezzar's army comes from Babylon. And what does Zedekiah do? He seals up the city. All right, go ahead. You guys want to wanna do something to us? You can't get in the city. So the Babylon, Babylon army says, no problem. You know what? We're going to lay siege around you, and you're not going to get out either. You're going to be stuck in there, and that's it. And nobody's going to get in. You're not going to get any supplies. You're not getting anything. You're not going to be able to, to remove any garbage, any dead bodies, nothing. That's it. You're on your own. Go ahead. See how you do. Well, about 18 months later, in fact, the date is, is in history, they know it, is July 14th, 586 B.C. The Babylonian army, after 18 months of siege, the people inside are dying. They're dying of disease. They're dying of starvation. They're, they're literally going out of their minds in there. 
the Babylonian army breaks through. They breach the wall, and they go in. And after the slaughter and what goes on there and the destruction, the remainder of the people of the city are taken exiled. There's only left a handful of people, mind you, just a handful of people left, and they were the, quote, undesirables. They were the poorest of the poor, you know, the weakest. Jeremiah happens to be left behind with them. Now, Jeremiah, uh, in fact, let me just add this, that after that, one month later, August 18th, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the commander of the Imperial Guard, called Nebuchadnezzar, torches what's ever left in the city. Every building is destroyed, destroyed or burned. The royal palace, destroyed, burned. And unthinkably, a Jew could not even comprehend this. The temple of God, Solomon's temple, Solomon had built this, is destroyed. When they are done, when Nebuchadnezzar is done, there's nothing, the temple is completely decimated and burned. All that Jerusalem is left is basically smoldering, just smoldering ashes and ruin. The, the worst thing of all was the temple because for the Jews, that, that, that was symbolic, first of all, of the presence of God with them. Remember in, in, in Egypt, when they, they left Egypt, the Jews, and they were traveling through the desert, do you remember that by day there was a pillar of cloud and by night there was a pillar of fire? And that always reminded them. It, it led them, but it also reminded them that God was with his people. And they were God's chosen people and they still are today and they will be forever. God keeps his promises. He has a plan for Israel yet in the last days. Zechariah says that a spirit of grace and supplication will come upon Israel. And that last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, the nation of Israel will come back. They will accept their Messiah. But God back then already was, was making his presence known with his people. And the temple represented that for them. And think about it. God's presence, a special manifestation of his presence, would come inside the temple was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant and the stone tablets of the law were in there. And God's presence would, would, would occur there and would manifest there between the, the seraphim and the bema seat. And the priest would go in there only once a year, the high priest, to, to ask for forgiveness, atonement for their sins of the nation. That was gone. The ceremony was gone. The ritual was gone. For, for a Jew... That is unthinkable. The temple of God is gone. Jeremiah. Now think about Jeremiah as we look at this. And the other part will go faster. I wanted, though, to give you some context because what we're going to read at this point for Jeremiah is devastating. He, he's doing this. The book is called Lamentations. They're funeral dirges. They, he's lamenting. He's, Jeremiah is walking. He's just, basically, he was probably just 
in, in shock, and he's walking through. I don't know what this thing is doing here, but it's moving. <laughs> okay. he's, Jeremiah is just basically wandering through the city, and he's looking, and he's lamenting. He's grieving the city, the people, God's temple. It's all gone. And basically what you have is a hopeless situation in the horizontal view. In the view of the here and now, this was, there's no hope. This is it. It's gone. Everything is gone. I, it, a couple weeks ago, there were some of those big storms. And I remember seeing a picture of a woman standing by a foundation of her house with just wood and cement and her belongings everywhere. It was leveled right to the ground. And that's what I couldn't help think of. And you know what? That is devastating. And I'm not going to try to downplay that. There are things that happen in our life that are devastating to us. You know, you, your house gets burned down. You love, you, you, the spouse you love dies. You lose a child. I mean, these are things that you're not human if you don't feel some sense of loss and grief and just feel a, a blackness over you at that moment. It's, it's normal for the Christian, too. You know, sometimes we think as Christians we have to you know, keep a certain image. This and that. We're people. And things like that affect us deeply and cut us deeply, regardless of our faith in God. Look at Jeremiah here now. He's, he's been walking, and for the first two chapters, he's just he's grieving and describing what's taken place. And Jeremiah knows that the people deserve this. Verse 19 of chapter 3 of Lamentations. Jeremiah says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. Now, bitterness, you think of during the Passover, at a Passover meal, they have the bitter herbs are there. It's a reminder of the situation, the bitter situation that they faced in Egypt when they were in bondage and slavery. It was bitter. But worse than that, he says, and the gall. Gall was the most bitterest plant that the Jews knew of. So what is Jeremiah saying? I remember the bitterness and the gall. He's saying, basically, I have such a bad taste in my mouth right now. You ever hear people say something like, I, uh, I had this guy do work on my car, he said, and he says, after I was finished with him, it left a bad taste in my mouth. A bad, and, you know, we use that kind of expression today. It left, I have a bad taste in my mouth over this. Well, that's what Jeremiah is saying. He says, I don't only have a bad taste in my mouth. I have a taste that is the most bitterest that I could have. He's referring to this. And then he says, I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Now think about Jeremiah keeps saying, I remember, I remember. He's thinking about 
these things that he sees. His thoughts are on what he's looking before him at. Everything is before him. It's all this horizontal view, which is normal. He's just looking at this, and he's taking it in, and he's going, he's, he's, he's lamenting. It's like a funeral dirge here, what he's singing as he does this. He says, and my soul is downcast within me. Now think about when a person talks about, a person will say, I love you with all my heart and what? My soul. Because you're saying, this is as deep as I can love you. This is, this is the essence, the core of my being. That I'm, I'm, I'm love. Well, Jeremiah is saying, at the core of my being, I'm downcast. I've been cast down. Probably he would say as low as he could go. He says, this is death. You know, I was thinking too, think about Jeremiah's situation. Not only did he experience this judgment that God passed, his righteous judgment that he passed upon Israel for their unrepentant sin and their basic ignoring God for all these years and, and, and decades. But Jeremiah was the one who was pleading with them in the name of the Lord to change. You know, there's something to me even more personal about that. I told these people, I can't, I've been telling them and telling them, and they never listen. It, to me, it would be like if I'm walking someplace and I see this young couple and they have a picnic blanket on a railroad track. And they have the basket and they have the sandwiches and they're both sitting and they're looking at one and they're just having a beautiful romantic lunch together and it's like, this is so beautiful. And they're sitting on a, 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 a railroad track where trains come every half hour. And it would be like me going to them and saying, listen, guys, you, you, need, to, you need to move over that side. The train's going to come. And they're going, oh, stop it. We're fine. And I ask them again, guys, Please. And then a few minutes later, I know the train's just about ready to come, and I say, please move. And the guy finally says, get out of here. You I I'm going to get up, and I'm going to you know, smack you if you don't leave me and my girlfriend alone. And then as I watch, the train comes, and it completely destroys them. I mean, that's how I picture Jeremiah feeling, that he knew it was coming, he warned them, and it still was. And Jeremiah says after all this, he says, my soul is downcast within me. He says, I'm so, I'm going to use our terms, I am so depressed. I am so down. And basically what he's saying is, I feel hopeless right now. I, I don't see anything that could come here except this, there's destruction in front of me. It's hopeless. But then watch what happens. He takes his focus off what's happening around him, what he sees, and he starts thinking for a minute somewhere else. And he goes, yet this I call to mind. Basically saying, wait a minute. I just remembered something. Something came in my mind. He says, and what? Therefore... I have hope. He went from hopelessness with one thought. He said, 
there's hope. There is hope here in this utter destruction. Now, in the normal realm, that probably doesn't make sense to people. But in the realm of faith, in the realm of the unseen reality of God, that makes all the sense. Jeremiah says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What was Jeremiah's hope? In the love of God and the idea that not only does he love Jeremiah and love his people, but it never fails. An unfailing love. Dr. Larry Crabb, who I, I read a lot of his material, I think he's great, he's a Christian counselor. He, was, he wrote a lot of things, especially like in the, the 80s and 90s. You know, he's still writing. But he's a, he's a doctor of psychology, He's a Christian psychologist. And I liked his approach, his overall approach to counseling with people. He said, basically, there are two deep longings in every human being, and God has put them there. The one, he said, is security, and the other is significance. Now, to break that down, security, he said, is unfailing love. You know, it's one thing, if you think about it, I'm at that age, I don't know whether I need them or don't need them. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm confused. Uh, but <laughs> please put up with me. Okay, the ear thing, the eyes, it's all right, a mess. Uh, but we're going to go anyway with this. Uh, so we have, he says, these longings, the idea of security, unfailing love. You think about it with love. It's one thing to be loved. But what happens sometimes in relationships in this life? People say, oh, I love him so much and you feel so good. And then a the person says, I don't love them anymore. Love, the idea of love is not secure in the sense. Because anything can happen. Or you can have their love and then that person dies. You just lost the love. You lost that deep longing that you looked for. And that's why Dr. Crabb says it's unfailing love that is what is important. And unfailing love because that's security. That is only given by God. God gave us those longings and he's the one that's supposed to fulfill that. We try, And that's why we have so many problems in relationships. Because... You know, I expect my spouse, I expected my parents, I expect my kids, I, I expect you to love me all the time. And that should be pretty easy. Come on, guys. I mean, that's not hard to love me. Come on. That's what. Uh, <laughs> until you get to know me. But anyway, uh, but what happens? You fail me just the way I fail you. Sometimes when you need me to love you, I miss it. I'm so wrapped up with myself or something else, I totally blow that moment. And you do the same to me. 
I love my wife, Carol, dearly. But there's times where I fail to love her the way she needs to be loved at that moment, where I'm so wrapped up with myself. But un God's love is unfailing. He never changes. God is immutable, and his love is immutable. It's unchanging. It's the one solid thing that we can always count on. And Jeremiah, it strikes him as he's down. In, it reminds me when he says, my soul is downcast within me. Reminds me, uh, I'm just thinking of it, in, in Psalm 40. David says, I, if I can remember, I waited patiently for the Lord. He says, he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock. He says, a firm place to stand. You know, God's love, you know, we can be in this, this place of, of just impossible, feeling impossible, this and that, but God takes us and he puts us on a rock. His love is like a rock. His faithfulness is like a rock. We stand there and it's firm. We have that. He says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. That's our hope. Not not, my hope is not in that everybody's going to love me the way I need to be loved. Although, at times, I put my hope like that and I get disappointed. And I want to demand love from you. You know, that's how we get them angry in broken relationships because I need unfailing love, but I don't get it. What do we do? We feel pain, and then when we have pain, we get angry, and then we start, you know, demanding. I demand that you treat me the way I need to be treated. Only God does that. No one else. And Jeremiah realized that. He realized that even in the midst of this, this place of desolation, God loved him. And his love was unfailing. It was God is the rock. You know, always the Israelites talked about, you know, the rock. They looked at the mountains as that which is eternal and which is steadfast. God is that rock. Christ is that rock that we can hold on to. He says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. I love that phrase, they are new every morning. Think about it. Tonight, when we go to sleep, there is no question that tomorrow morning the sun is going to rise unless Jesus returns tonight, which would be better than to have that day. But we know the sun is going to come up tomorrow. It's a new day. And he says, just as sure, he says, as tomorrow will come. He says, that's what God's love is, his faithfulness. It's a sure thing. It never fails like that. In fact, we sing it. David sings a song where it's your love never gives up, never fails, never you know, gives up on me or something like that. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I forget sometimes. But... But it's talking about the steadfastness of God. Now, we keep, if we keep our eyes on the vertical, not only the horizontal, we have hope. And you think about it, people who in this society now, this society which is a secular society, it's the here and now, and one of the biggest, one of the biggest philosophies that affected this was back in the 20th century called existentialism. That's the, basically, it's a very 
complex system of philosophy to try to boil down because it's no system at all. But basically it says there is no purpose to anything. There are no absolutes. And you know what that is? Ultimately, it's a philosophy of despair. If you have that existential view, basically, it's this moment. It's, you know, what I experience. Reality is what I experience at this moment. And as long as we're here, we're experiencing. But once we die, that's it. I don't know about you, that is the most depressing philosophy. I mean, I call it the philosophy of despair. That's what it leads to. No hope. And basically they say that. They say life has no purpose, life has no meaning, everything just is, is empty. So just live, you know, for that moment like that. And that's why people are living like animals. I do what I want, you know, at any moment. Just whatever feels good, do it because you're going to be dead. And then you have nothing at all. Now, I see our time is, is going here. I don't want to, we've been going for over a half hour. I want to, I want to wrap this up. Uh, so how does this affect us? Think about God's love. And he says it like this. He says, because of the Lord's great love. How do, we, how do we get a handle on that? How do we grasp the idea of God's great love? What is the greatest demonstration that God has ever showed of his love for us? Sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ. That is the greatest illustration of God's great love. It can be no greater love than that. He gave up his one and only son, they were in eternal fellowship, never separated throughout eternity. And yet when God sent Christ to earth, which Christ willingly came and gave up everything, think about what Christ did when he came here to show that love. I think that one of my favorite passages is in, in Philippians chapter 2. This is, Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who what? being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, you know, something to be held on to. You see a little kid go, they got a toy, mine, mine. You know, I always think of, Paul says, Jesus gave up all that, you know, and he was made in the, the likeness of man, you know. He gave up everything and became obedient, even to death on a cross. How can you comprehend God dying? You know, that whole, the whole thing of that is unbelievable. But Christ, that's why he came as all God and all man. The all man died here. Christ the man died on the cross. He gave up everything for us. And you know what always blows me away about his great love? Whenever I think of Romans 5.8, Paul says that, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing love. Who in the world would die for somebody who basically is just rebelling against you every minute and says, 
I don't want any part of you. I'm going to do my own thing, go back to the Garden of Eden. I'm God. I can be God. I don't need you, God. I live the way I want. Nobody tells me. I'm a self-made person, and I do whatever I want. And God, at that moment and time, is when he died for us. To me, when we were at our most despicable, that's when he died for me. That's when he died for you. That's the great love of God. We need, that's why I, I hope and I pray that we as Christians, those of you who are here are Christians, that you would every day go through that in your mind. Go through the love of Christ to die for us, to take our place on the cross for our sins so that we might have eternal life. We, I, I'm so afraid that what happens is that, you know, because we think of the unseen reality, we also, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And after a while, too, familiarity. You know, after a while, people go, yeah, Jesus, Jesus died for my sins, which is not really correct. He died, and, you know, and he took our sins, but it was, he saved us not from our sins, but from the wrath of God, is what he ultimately said. The sins that we committed were caused the wrath of God upon us, his righteous wrath. But let's grasp as Christians that love of Christ every day. And that's, that's fuel that keeps us moving in faith. So say, who is this God that can do this? You know, and I, so I ask you to, to take and seriously consider every day what Christ has done and not only look at what you see, but what you don't see. What is it in 2 Corinthians 4.18? Paul says, you know, so we fix our eyes on what is unseen because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul says, we don't focus on the here and now. He says, we look at that prize, that Christ, someday we are going to take our last breath. And when we do, if we have been born again, if we have, we have repented and, and of our sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are going to come face to face with him. And the only reason is because of Christ, God's love through Christ's sacrifice. I I long for that moment. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine seeing the face of God. That's, you know, once somebody said to me, I, actually, well, I should say, I said to them, I guess, I, this was when I was a newer Christian about maybe 30-something years ago. And he was, an, he was a, an elder in the church. His name was Bob. And I said, Bob, I'm kind of embarrassed, you know, I feel funny asking you this and embarrassed. I was maybe in the faith a year or two. I said, but sometimes I wonder, what are we going to do for eternity in heaven? It just sounds like after a while, I don't know, if this, and I'm sure everybody thought of that. We don't, we don't like to say that, but you say, is it going to get boring, you know? No TV, no computer, no video games, no iPhone, no you know, smartphone. What are people going to do up there after a while? But you know what? And he said a good answer to me. He said, Walt, 
He said, probably when you stand before God for the first time, your mouth is going to drop open and you're going to, I think he might have said, you're going to fall down and you're just going to stare at his face for about 40,000 years. He said, before you say anything, well, think about that. I, I love to go in the backyard at night and look at the sky. Look at the stars. Think about the thousands of light years some of these stars are. The, the distance that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Am I right, Dr. Camelloni? Yes, okay. He's my fat science fact checker over here. He's, it's always good to have a scientist in your pocket when you're talking, I'm telling you. Think about every second, 186,000 miles per second, going for a year and then multiplying that thousands of years. And that's like the tip of the iceberg. Not even the tip of the iceberg, because it's not even 10%. It's like a, a, a little wisp of the universe we're looking at. I look at that and I say, who is this God who did this? Who is he who created something like this? And how did he do it? Out of nothing, you know, ex nihilo, you know, just out of nothing. And how? By his spoken word? Let there be, let there be. And it's come into being. And one day, a creature who he made out of the dust of the earth, he did breathe his spirit, the spirit of life into us. And he created us in his image, although it's fallen by sin right now. It will be restored. But, and we look at this and say, I want to, I look at it, I say, I want to see this God. I want to, I want to see him. I want to know him. This person, and he's the only one we should call awesome, by the way. I know I have a pet peeve about that sometimes I say to the guys, but the only one word, time we should ever use the word awesome is with God. Think about what it means when something is awesome. It puts us in a state of awe, in a state that we're awestruck. And I hate to, but sometimes people say like, oh, we went to the restaurant the other night. I had this steak. It was awesome. A steak doesn't put you, it's a steak should not put you in a state of awesome. I'm sorry. You're a little too much with food if it does. I'm sorry it's like that. You know, this has maybe become your God. We better be careful here, you know. But only God is awesome. Nothing else is awesome. You know, the concert I saw last week was awesome. You know, oh, that, you know, that building over there is awesome. This, no, 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 no. God is awesome. He's the only one that should bring awe and wonder in us. And I'm going to stop now because we're going too long here. And uh, I just encourage you, if you are in Christ, to sit quietly Think about him. Meditate on him. And by meditation, I don't mean, you know, some, you know, some Buddhist type of ritual. But think deeply. Let me ask you this before I, I quit. Honestly, to yourself, think. When is the last time you sat for five or ten minutes in silence? Just in silence and not praying and saying, God, could you give me this? Could you give me that? Could you do this? Could you do that? But just sitting quietly and focusing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and letting God speak back to you and reveal himself to you. Think about when the last time that was. And I encourage you every day to find a car. And you might say, well, it's no quiet place in my house. Go in your car. Sit out in your car for 10 minutes. It's not weird. You get used to it. I've done things like that. It's not, well, it might look weird, but and I'm weird, but I'm telling you that's not weird if you do it, if you're seeking God. Any place you can seek God in quiet, do it. You'll find it'll change your life. I'm telling you, it'll change your life when you do things like that. It makes the difference. Don't just, don't just pick up the Bible and say, oh, I did my reading today. I did my reading and reading. And that's another thing. I get worried because I hear Christians when they talk about Bible reading, sometimes it's more like a ritual. It's just like, I read my chapter today, I'm okay. You should always think when you open up this Bible, you're meeting with God. What does Hebrews 4.12 say? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's God speaking through his word and the Holy Spirit and working upon your heart. Now, before I go any longer, I'm going to keep quiet. And I, o- I will end by saying, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I urge you to go home today, examine your heart, examine your life, ask God to do it to you, and cry out for mercy that he would save you, that he would come and he would do a work in your heart and give you the faith to say, yes, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to repent of my sin. And uh, you will have hope because, as Jeremiah says, therefore, I have hope. Why? He focused upon the great unseen reality, God, who he is. Don't lose sight. It sounds, it's probably an oxymoron or whatever whatever the term might be, saying don't lose sight of the great unseen reality, but don't lose it. Okay. I would like to end, if we could stand, and if... I'd like you to just stand in silence for a minute. Just consider something maybe that was said today. And then I think it would be appropriate, let's worship him by singing the doxology. Okay? And then we'll uh, be dismissed in prayer. Okay? So just sit quietly for a minute, and then I'll start leading the doxology if you would join me.